Section 9 of The General Principle of Relativity in Its Philosophical and Historical Aspect. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tommy Hersot, Carlsbad, California. The General Principle of Relativity in Its Philosophical and Historical Aspect by Herbert Wilden Carr. Section 9. Conclusion. In what sense is the universe infinite? Every revolution in the world view has profoundly affected mankind in those aspects of life which depend upon reason. So far as most of us are concerned, the principle of relativity may seem a matter of small importance, dealing with infinitesimals which in the ordinary business of life are entirely inappreciable. It disturbs our general scientific methods no more than the Copernican theory disturbed the practical adjustments of the human mind. For mankind, the sun continues to rise and set. We reckon the times and the seasons, as men have always done and will do, irrespective of any change which has taken place or which may take place in astronomical theory. Newton's law of the inverse square will not cease to be a practical rule for engineers and mechanicians for all economic projects, nor will it cease to commend itself by its simplicity. If Einstein's formula comes to be recognized as theoretically perfect. In religion, however, and in philosophy of life, philosophy as it concerns mankind generally, and not as technical metaphysics or theory of knowledge, its effect will be profound and far-reaching. I will conclude, therefore, with an indication of some of these higher interests in the new principle. It seems to me that the new world view must take the form of, and find the imagery for, a new concept of the nature of the continuity and infinity of the universe. In the world view, as it has found expression in religion and philosophy hitherto, the concept of infinity has been inseparably associated with the ideas of space and time. Quote, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, unquote, is the liturgical expression of this idea. It depends on the notion of the absoluteness of the spatio-temporal order. The mathematical definition of continuity and infinity is, as we have seen, simply a precise form of expression for the spatial and temporal concepts, depends upon them for its applicability, and appeals exclusively to the pragmatic test. It is justified because it works, but it only works insofar as we accept in advance the postulate of an external world in space and time. The new principle of relativity goes behind and beneath the mathematical definition of infinity, for it rejects the postulate on which it is based.
so far as the mathematical principle rests on the Euclidean postulates, and so far as infinity means, when applied to Euclidean space and its imagery, boundlessness and absence of limits, we have seen that the new principle definitely rejects the concept of infinity. It gives us, in fact, what to common sense is a new paradox, a world which is finite and yet not circumscribed. So far, however, we have to do only with the negative aspect of the principle. What has it to offer on the positive side? The answer to me seems clear and manifest. We are offered in place of the contradictory pseudo-concepts of endless extension and limitless duration, the concept of a truly infinite universe. The infinity of the universe is based on the nature of life and consciousness. The principle of relativity declares that there is no absolute magnitude that there exists nothing whatever which can claim to be great or small in its own nature. Also, there is no absolute duration, nothing whatever which in its own nature is short or long. I coordinate my universe from my own standpoint of rest in a system of reference in relation to which all else is moving, that system may change, and there is no limit to the change it may undergo, but however great the change, measured by its relation to other systems, its dimensions remain constant. I, the observer, am not a point at an instant. Space and time dimensions do not apply to mind. A monad has no dimensions and therefore cannot be in a relation of magnitude to another. One monad does not occupy more or less space than another. Space and time are not containers, nor are they contents. They are variants. Consequently, Whatever my system of reference, as I pass into it or out of it, that is, as it changes, so my spatial points and temporal instants change. My units of measurement vary. So keeping the dimensions of my universe constant. I may illustrate my meaning if I now give, with as much imagery as the concept will admit, my idea of the nature of the infinity and continuity of the universe. In doing so, I will set aside all questions of detail and all special problems in order to set out the scheme with as much generality as possible. I start, then, from the monadic concept. We all belong to the order of self-conscious minds. Everyone has his own system of reference within which, from his standpoint of rest, therein he may correlate events which happen for him with events which happen for his fellows. The systems of reference appear to us to have practically everything in common, and we are able, consequently, to have intercourse with one another, to refer to the actual events as common. 
A philosophical problem of fundamental importance is involved in this fact of intercourse, but it need not interrupt our attempt to form a world view. Whether the world is the condition of intercourse or intercourse the condition of the existence of the world, we think of the world as common to all. Our world, then, or to be precise, let each of us say, my world, appears as a certain range of activity and a certain possibility of experience. This world is definitely limited. Its limits have been pushed out by our advancing science, but it is, on one side, limited by our concept of the atomic system. On the other, by our concept of the stellar system. Within these limits, there are infinite systems of reference, using the word infinite here in its ordinary discursive meaning. For example, there is the animal world, the insect world, the vegetable world, the protozoan world, and the microbian world, each containing within it countless different ranges of activity and innumerable possibilities of experience. Now imagine, in the manner of folk tales, that we have the power to pass from our system into any of these. That is, imagine that our mind can enter the living organism of bird or insect or microbe, possess its range of activity, and enjoy its experience, still continuing by memory our former experience. We have then only to reflect on the nature of life and consciousness to see that the change in the system of reference cannot be a change in the subject of experience, and can only be a change in the object of experience. The subject passing to the new system of reference must therefore necessarily bring with it its norm, the standard of its measurement in reference to which it judges objects to be great or small. It is obvious that a creature small in size as judged by me, and to whom I am a Brobdignagian, does not feel its smallness. It feels my greatness for its norm is supplied by its own instrument of activity, its living body. There are, in fact, within our ordinary perspective, myriads of subjects of experience, each of which finds in its bodily organization the norm of its dimensions. If, then, I pass from one system to another, it is certain that my space and time units must vary for unless they do, there is no conceivable way of effecting the exchange of standpoint. Now, we have admitted that there are limits to our universe. We are bounded, we have said, by the atomic system on one side, the stellar system on the other. Even the minutest microbe is far removed from the atomic limit. And the mythical beings whom the poets have created are well within the stellar limit. Let us, however, boldly imagine that the change of system carries us right to the limit. It is easily conceivable. 
We have to imagine our proportions reduced to the ten thousand trillionth and we are within the atom, or increased to the same amount and the earth is as far below the limit of perception as an electron. So that, in the first case, the electron of the atom has become for us a planet, which will appear to us, at least we can imagine it, as a universe precisely like the present, and its limits will be as now, an atomic system on the one hand, a stellar system on the other. And in the other case, the present stellar system will have become an atomic system. This is the way in which the infinity of the universe presents itself to me, when space and time are recognized as variable and not constant. I shall be challenged, however. It will be said that I have not escaped from the dilemma of the old mathematical infinity because, though I may carry my norm of measurement as the inseparable adjunct of consciousness and vary my space and time through infinite change of system, it is, after all, only for me that the standard is constant. To an independent external observer, I become larger or smaller, absolutely. But it is precisely this idea that there can be an independent observer in an absolute system of reference, that the principle of relativity negatives and rejects. It seems to me, therefore, that the principle of relativity is a philosophical principle which is not only called for by the need of mathematical and physical science for greater precision in the new field of electromagnetic theory in which it is continually advancing, but is destined to give us a new world view. It will be found as it has always been found, that the poets with their mythical interpretations and the philosophers with their speculative hypotheses have led the way in this new advance. The continuity of the universe can only be a continuity of consciousness, and the mode of this continuity is imaginatively presented to us in the old Eastern myth of the transmigration of the soul, and, may we not also say, in the Christian mystery of the Incarnation. I conclude, then, that in every reflection on our actual experience, we are directly conscious of an objectivity which we distinguish from our subjective activity of knowing. Whether we approach the problem of that objectivity from the abstract standpoint of physical science or from the concrete standpoint of philosophy, the result is the same. Ultimately, in spite of its claim to independence, all that an object or event is, in substance or in form, it derives from the activity of the life or mind for which alone it possesses the meaning which makes it an object or event. This is not a mystical doctrine, nor is it esoteric. If we adopt in mathematics and physics the principle of relativity, and have we any choice, 
the obstinate, resistant form of the objectivity of the physical world dissolves to thin air and disappears. Space and time, its rigid framework, sink to shadows. Concrete four-dimensional space-time becomes a system of world lines, infinitely deformable. And these world lines, do not they at last bring us in sight of an irreducible minimum of self-subsistent objectivity? No, the world lines are not things in themselves. They are only an expression for what is or may become common to different observers in the relations between their standpoints. Carried to its logical conclusion, the principle of relativity leaves us without the image or the concept of a pure objectivity. The ultimate reality of the universe, as philosophy apprehends it, is the activity which is manifested in life and mind, and the objectivity of the universe is not a dead core serving as the substratum of this activity, but the perception actions of infinite individual creative centers in mutual relation. A closing illustration will perhaps serve better than argument to bring home to the reader the philosophical meaning of the principle. On a frosty morning we may see the watery vapor in the air we breathe condense into a small cloud and then rapidly disappear, reabsorbed into the atmosphere. Imagine that at such a moment we should undergo a sudden transformation of all our proportions so that our new dimensions become infinitesimal in comparison with our present state. Would it appear to us that we ourselves had changed? The principle of relativity declares that the change could not possibly be experienced by us as change in ourselves because with the alteration in proportions, the ratios remain constant. The change would express itself in the new dimensions of objects. The little globules of water which composed the cloud would now appear as stars and planets at immense distances from one another undergoing a slow, age-long evolution and obeying the law of the inverse square. The change would be a new space and a new time. End of section 9. End of the general principle of relativity in its philosophical and historical aspect by Herbert Wilden Carr. Reading by Tommy Hersant, Carlsbad, California.